0: Great to have you guys here. I wasn't uh, expecting so many people uh, during a Raptors game. It doesn't work here. So, Ra- Raptors played at 10 o'clock in the morning game. You guys, uh, I'm in the wrong country, I'm pretty sure. Uh, anyways, happy Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, good to be with you guys. We're, we're beginning a, uh, a new series this morning. Um, and it's, uh, the series is entitled Meals with Jesus. Uh, as many of you know, we've, we've been on a bit of a journey this year looking at our SunWest values, and each of our sermon series, uh, for the most part, uh, are covering uh, our core values here at SunWest, and we just finished the, the value of intimacy with God. We're moving into the value of community. Sorry, before I forget, if you're in junior high, uh, follow Colton is wearing the same shirt as me out the back door, uh, he'll take you to Theater 5 uh, for junior high conversations. That's grade 6 to 8. Uh, so we're moving out of our Intimacy with God series, and we're starting uh, the value that focuses on community. And this one, as I mentioned, is titled uh, Meals with Jesus. And it's taken out of uh, the book of Luke. Uh, we're going to look at a bunch of different meals that Jesus has in the book of Luke. Food unites us, doesn't it, when we think about Uh, What brings us together? Uh, When you uh, sit around your kitchen table, you are connecting with people around your table. Um, The Chronicle girls. Hello. (laughs) Sorry. I was looking for you guys before. I'm going to interrupt myself here. Um, I I just want to take a second, actually, before I start, um, and I'm going to... They, don't, they didn't know I was going to do this, but I want to actually pray uh, for my friends, uh, Emily and Hannah, um, and uh, they just lost their dad suddenly uh, over the, just a little a week ago or so. Uh, they were, they've been a part of SunWest for a long time. They're uh, living in Victoria right now, uh, and they had a celebration of life yesterday for their dad here in town. I was unable to make it because my my kids were... Or my oldest son, we were in West Edmonton Mall uh, for his 10th birthday. Uh, but um, we just wanted to say we love you guys, and uh, we've been praying for you here. Uh, but I just want to take a minute to pray for you now. Uh, as I, is that okay? Awesome. Um, so let's let's uh, let's pray together. Um, Father, we thank you for. Um, our friends, uh, the Chronicles. And Lord, we thank you for, for Peter. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you loved him deeply. Uh, and we grieve uh, that he is not with us anymore. And Lord, we grieve with the family um, as they uh, grieve the loss of a, a father, a husband, uh, a man who uh, loved many well. Um, and God, we just ask that your peace would. Uh, would be on the Chronicle on the family in the season. Lord, that they would sense your presence. Uh, Lord, that you're not someone that abandons us in hard times, but you lean in close. And so, Lord, we thank you for your closeness. Um, and uh, yeah, we thank you that, um, that the, what we feel in grief is not unknown to you, Lord, that you are a God that grieves with us, that you enter into our grief with us. Uh, and so, God, we just say thank you. We ask your presence and blessing in their life, in that home, in Jesus' name. Amen. That was like the, the not the smoothest start to a sermon I've ever had. Um, community. Well, that's a part of what what community is uh, is that we we love each other that we uh, we give and we receive and we we bless and we encourage and we walk through uh, mountain tops and valleys together uh, we believe that here at Sunwest that it's a powerful way that God's actually wired us to experience him uh, is through one another um, and so when we think about when we think about the table, uh, when we think about eating together, you know, this is where so much community happens, where, uh, where we share life together. Uh, when you think of your family gatherings, um, you know, often at Christmas or Thanksgiving, your, uh, your whole center of focus at those, those events is actually around the, the, the turkey or the pumpkin pie, uh, the food draws us together. Uh, I remember last weekend I was in B.C. for uh, some board meetings. Uh, and uh, when I got there, my flight got there first thing in the morning and my board meeting did going to start till the afternoon, so I had the chance to connect with my brother. Um, and what did we do when we connected? Went to Denny's, of course. Um, and so, so we connected. And we said, hey, let's, uh, let's get together and connect. And obviously it's easy to go eat food together and you connect. A funny story, as, we were, as I was driving to Denny's, uh, we get—I uh, was the passenger. Someone else was was driving. Uh, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say who. Um, they may be in this room. Uh, but we we got we got stopped at a, we missed the turn off, and we got stopped at a set of lights and w- is in the middle of this busy intersection. And I just said, "Let me out! Let me out right here!" Um, I'll just jump across the intersection. And my stuff was in the back, so I ran out of the vehicle, try and get the stuff in the back. Uh, but as you know, you got to put the vehicle in park in order to allow everything to unlock and. Um, and so I'm, I'm back there trying to open the back to get my stuff out, um, and as I'm standing behind my vehicle, I hear somebody yell my name behind me. This is in Abbotsford, right? Um, someone says, Matt, I'm in this busy intersection, I'm like, who's calling my name? And I look behind me, uh, one of my best friends, who I haven't actually seen in a couple of years, his wife is in the van behind me, and, and I was, I was going to say, oh, hi, Jody, but as I'm trying to talk to her, the light goes green, uh, and I run back in. And it was like just just quick, weird coincidence, and, uh, and I was gone. And then my buddy texted me. He's like, hey, I didn't know you were in town. Can we connect? So we connected that night. And where do we connect? At a restaurant over food, of course, because um, that's how we do community. When I was in Peru uh, a long time ago as a college student, we went to Peru uh, on a mission trip. We were in the Andes Mountains. And we were connecting, uh, breaking ground for the first time between the Wycliffe missionaries and this, and this people group up in the mountains, uh, and they uh, had this gesture of friendship, and they wanted uh, just to extend friendship to us, and so they cooked us like a village community meal, and, and with one of their specialties, and that specialty is guinea pigs. Uh, how many of you guys have ever eaten guinea pig before? It, it tastes, yeah, Chris, <laughs> it tastes like chicken wings, except there's just less meat on them. Uh, but they didn't do hot sauce or ranch or anything with them. It was just like straight up uh, straight-up guinea pig. Uh, but he, so it, it translates cultures, right? you You go to a different country and they extend friendship to you, and what does that look like? It looks like community over a meal together. I remember dating, right when me and my wife were dating, obviously you're going out on dates, you're eating meals together, you're getting to know each other. She would come to Killarney, Manitoba, where I grew up in the summertime, and she would get to know my family in an intimate way when we sit around a meal together. I, I remember one of the first time she came to visit, my dad came in from working outside, you know, small, small town, farm type of community, uh, and it's hot outside in the middle of summer, Manitoba, and so obviously he's working without a shirt on, uh, and he comes in the house, he doesn't put his shirt back on, he just sits himself right down at the dinner table, um, no shirt on. To me, no big deal. My wife is a big deal. Uh, she's like, I've never. She's like, I don't know if I've ever seen my dad without a shirt on, other than when he swam. Uh, but yeah, no, my dad eats at the supper table without a shirt on. Um, my apologies, Dad, if you're watching this online. Um, but you, anyways, you eat around a table and you get to know people in a way that you wouldn't have otherwise. The power of the table. The power of food. You know, we have an odd relationship to food. You know, we live in a culture where chefs have become celebrities, uh, where cookbooks frequent the bestseller lists, even though we cook as a culture less than we ever have before. Americans, and I'm guessing, you know, it's it's similar to Canadians. Americans spend $50 billion a year on dieting, and 25% of men or 45% of women are dieting at any given time. We spend more on our problem of overconsumption than we do feeding the physically and spiritually hungry. Ironic. When we think of the success of Starbucks over the last 20 years, i sorry, I just heard a gasp. Uh, I said it was not going to... Um, I have to include Tim Hortons, actually, in my, uh, in my coffee examples. Um, LAUGHTER the uh, and it goes for, it goes for both. Uh, but you know, the last twenty years, the success of Starbucks. What have they done? Is they commercialized hospitality. Uh, the price of hospitality is simply a cup cup of coffee. And um, people are willing to go and spend a cup of coffee to to kind of have that. Uh, hospitable environment because we're meeting less and less in homes and so we meet more in neutral community spaces and so we create these community type spaces. Uh, Tim Hortons has done a really good job of that. Can we get a name in for Tim Hortons? The last... uh, Yeah. I've I've noticed some improvements and so it it feels like a living room now in Tim Hortons. Good job, Frank. uh, The commercialization of hospitality, it's, it's almost... We're hungry for it, and so we're willing to actually go get a cup of coffee somewhere with somebody to have that experience together. Um, it's a little safer than having people in your home. In Luke, we we see Jesus, who's actually very concerned with food and meals, and he's moving from one meal to the next. Um, complete the sentence for me: The Son of Man came to to what? To eat, <laughs> you got it right away. Okay, but let me come back to that in a second. Mark ten forty-five. It said the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. Luke nineteen verse ten. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. But Luke seven 30, thirty-four, the third phrase says the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Amen. The first two statements are why statements. This is why the Son of Man came. The third statement, though, is a how statement. How, how did the Son of Man come? What, what did he do when he came? He ate a lot and he drank a lot. He ate so much and drank so much that he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. In Luke 7.34, the Son of Man came, eating and drinking. A glutton and drunker, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Why was he considered a friend of sinners, a friend of tax collectors and sinners? Because those were the people with whom he was eating with around the table. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal or coming from a meal. He reminds me of my youngest son. So my youngest son is infatuated with food. So he's going to school, and his main concern for school is, what snacks do I have for school in my backpack? Mom, what did you pack me for lunch? He's going to have a play date. Can I take food to my play date? He has a friend over. Can me and my friend have a snack? We're going on a ski trip. He is, he is less excited about skiing than he is about getting to sit in the van for the next hour and a half and eating whatever snack that he gets to pack. We're on the ski hill and he's asking, when can we take a break? Is it lunchtime yet? Can we, can we have a snack? We go on a bike ride. And, you know, I, I actually like just the bike ride, but he's most excited about the backpack that he gets to wear and the juice boxes or the fruit leathers or the granola bars that he gets to put in his backpack. And so he's, the whole time we're biking, he's like, when do we get to break? When, do we, when can we stop and have our snack? It's like Jesus. Jesus' strategy in the Gospel of Luke is actually just sitting and eating with people. He's always going to a meal or coming from a meal. And this is simple, it's not complicated, but it doesn't mean that it's easy or comfortable. Jesus' strategy invites us to a countercultural, radical hospitality. And I think we're living in a time when our world is actually trying to find hospitality outside of the home where we, as followers of Jesus, actually have to rediscover this, rad- this idea of radical hospitality where we have people in our homes, where we eat meals with them, where we let them into the, the messiness of our lives. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as the weeks go on. Uh, but without the need to actually you know, present or display, or uh, we actually just let be vulnerable and invite people into our homes as imperfect or unprepared as they might be. So Luke 7, we have a story of a meal. Each of the next four weeks, we're going to look at a, a specific meal that Jesus has. Luke 7, you can turn there in your scriptures. Um, it's actually going to be easier for you to follow in the scriptures because I'm throwing a curveball at uh, our media guys, and I'm, I'm, I'm not doing it in the order that it is on the slides. Sorry, Rob. Luke um, Luke 7. Uh, Verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him, so Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him the story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven, so she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So a couple of of points, just to kind of give context to the story. In this culture, when they would kind of come around a meal and eat together, uh, they would dine actually on three sides of the table, much like we have here. Uh, the fourth side would be open. Uh, the reason the fourth side of the table was open was because servants would come and they would bring food to the table. And this allowed easy access to go to and from. Uh, as well, even though we have chairs around the table here, because that's how we eat, that's a little bit different uh, than the context in which would happen in the first century. Uh, the people that were eating the food would actually lie down on their sides, on their left arms, elbow on the ground, usually, usually um, on a pillow. They would eat with their right hands, uh, and they would lie with their feet away from the table. Uh, obviously, you can imagine in that time with all the, the dirt and the sandals, and people walking as much as they walked, uh, You know, feet didn't smell the greatest, um, and so having that away from the food... Uh, would be advantageous for the appetite. So they lied feet away from the table and in the homes it was actually uh, the eating area especially in the rich homes was in a semly, semi-public area. A little bit different than for us where we eat homes in the pri- where we eat our meals in the... We don't eat homes. But, uh, we eat our meals in the privacy of our own homes and people can't just invade our space. That wasn't the case. They had... Their meals, kind of in the semi-public area, often in, the, in a courtyard area, where people could actually observe who was eating and what was happening in the house. People would walk by; they could greet the uh, the homeowner. Uh, you know, if there was a discussion happening around the table, they might even enter in on the discussion. And so, this gives a bit of a context to the story of how could a sinful woman like this just magically appear at the table without the host actually knowing? It's because it was actually quite normal. And so we're in the home of a a Pharisee. If you know anything about Pharisees, they guarded their purity, right? They believed uh, that God was calling Israel to be a holy and a pure nation. And so the more holy you were, the more pure you were, um, the greater chance that the Messiah, the Son of Man, he was going to come and rescue Israel. He was going to deliver Israel uh, from under the oppression of the Romans. But the reason that he hadn't done that yet is because the people weren't holy enough. And so they were calling for holy reform. So they had all these rules. They were trying to do things right. And we see in verse 36 that Simon, the homeowner, invited Jesus to his home. And this, was, uh, this is important to note that Simon was a seeker. Simon actually wanted to get to know Jesus. The, the Pharisees were violently opposed to Jesus. Really, the only Pharisee that shows an initiative or an interest in Jesus like Simon does here is Nicodemus. And if you remember the story of Nicodemus, when does Nicodemus come to Jesus? At nighttime. Why does he come at nighttime? Because of the the pressure, uh, because of the potential ridicule and persecution he would receive from his fellow Pharisees. And so this is actually a big deal that Simon the Pharisee would invite Jesus into his home for a meal. He was a seeker. He wanted a relationship with Jesus so he invites him into his home, and even more so than it is than now, to eat with somebody was actually to invite them to the same level as you, to, to have a relationship with them. And we contrast this to the woman in the story. The woman is also a seeker. She's not directly called a prostitute here in the story, uh, but any scholars would actually look at what is being described in the in the story here, and say definitely because of her actions, because of what the word the wording that is used to describe from the story, that was who she was. So, someone who is a prostitute, obviously in the Pharisee's mind, someone who's incredibly impure, uh, whose sins are great, and she enters into the home of the Pharisee. And if you look at the way she tr- she's treating Jesus, almost as if she's treating Jesus like he was one of her clients. They represent two very different ways of seeking Jesus, even though they're both authentically trying to seek Jesus. The Pharisee, Simon, he's coming to Jesus impersonally, but she's coming to Jesus very personally. You notice how much thinking Simon does. Right? So, so Simon, he probably hears Jesus' teaching, uh, considers him a rabbi, potentially a prophet, um, he's intrigued by the content that Jesus is bringing, invites Jesus into his home so that they can dialogue. And so Simon can kind of figure out, what do I think of this teaching of Jesus? What do I think about this man? Do, do I want to adapt some of his thoughts and his teachings into my own life? There's something intriguing about him. And so Simon has a seeking, but it's like this detached intellectual type of seeking. And even when uh, even when Jesus starts to engage with the woman. You notice it goes, in the story, goes to Simon's thoughts. Simon began to think, you know, who is, who is this man? He must not even be a prophet. If, he, if this woman's touching him, does he not realize how impure she is, how much sin is in her life? Um, if she touches him, then actually he's impure. Does he not recognize this? So, so you can see the gears of Simon are turning. It's, it's not that he's necessarily against Jesus, but he just actually can't figure out who Jesus is. When we think about Simon in the context of our world, I think he's a, he's a good caricature for how we often approach Jesus. You know, there were two people in a magazine uh, that were asked, you know, what's your biggest issues with Christianity? What's your, what's your problem with Christianity? One person said, the problem I have with Christianity is Christians focus so much on Jesus rather than on the message or example he set. By focusing on Jesus, I think it excludes other religions and other people from having a relationship with God, and that really bothers me. I'm not sure about Jesus or what level he was, um, but we should learn from him. People can't separate Jesus' message from the messenger, but I do. Second answer, the way I perceive Christianity right now is not centered on Christ, the person, but on God and the path Christ outlines for us For us, how we should live. I have a lot of trouble with the interpretation that says if you don't worship Christ, you're not going to heaven. That's too exclusionary. When he says, I'm the way, the truth, and life, I think he's talking about my way, the way I'm trying to show you and demonstrate to you, if you live that way he showed us, I think that's the way you can have a relationship with God. Wouldn't that kind of sum up our culture in general of how we understand Jesus? What do you guys think? That in summary, it's more about the ideas of Jesus. What did Jesus teach us? How did he teach us how to live? And it doesn't matter exactly what you believe as long as you're a good person, as long as you're a moral person. That's the main point. And and although I'm sympathetic to that view, Jesus actually says the exact opposite here. He says the exact opposite because the woman in the story is not a good person. The woman in the story, in terms of her sins, are articulated as having many. Jesus says it doesn't matter if you're a good person, but whether you have a wildly passionate personal relationship with me. The motivation for separating the message from the messenger is so we're open minded and so that we don't exclude. But what we do when we think that way is we exclude something very important. We exclude the personal, we exclude the type of faith that comes to Jesus with tears. The type of faith that comes and washes Jesus' feet with their hair. The type of faith that actually takes the alabaster jar, which we'll talk about in a second, and breaks it over the feet of Jesus. We want to keep Jesus at a distance, and we just want to follow his teachings, but we've actually, in that moment, excluded the intimate, personal relationship that this woman demonstrates. We've moved into a Simon type of seeking one that wants the detached relationship from a distance, that wants to remain in control of their life, doesn't want Jesus to rock the boat, and I'm just going to invite him over for dinner so that I can see if there's some ideas here that might be applicable to my life. I'm sympathetic to Simon because I'm often him, but that's different than the faith that we see Jesus commending and responding to in the story. A religion without tears, a religion without letting your hair down, a religion without a personal encounter, a detached religion, a Simon religion, I would ask the question, is this what we really want? Because that's what we have. And this is what we have in our culture often, and it's one or the other. We can have like the Simon approach to seeking Jesus, or we can be like the woman. They're both seeking, but they're seeking in a very different way. I want to contrast just a couple of things between Simon and and this woman. Again, Simon says he doesn't want a religion of touching, but you notice that it's the moment that the woman touches Jesus is is also the moment that he has the most questions and where he's most uncomfortable, like this this personal, intimate type of relationship. It's like, Jesus, do you even know? Like, Are you sure you want to do that? She comes without conditions, and he has all sorts of conditions. She comes with this alabaster jar. And so this jar is is something that she would wear around her neck. Uh, And it's a jar of perfume. And the perfume itself had a long neck on the perfume bottle. And so it's it's not something you could actually pour out. Uh, You would open it up, and it would would give off the scent. It would would kind of uh, be a part of her attractive uh, package. Uh, and, And so she would have the scent about her. In order to break an alabaster jar, because you couldn't pour it out, or in order to pour it out, you would actually have to break the jar. So for her to pour this jar out on Jesus meant like this ruthless, um, just totally committed act of shattering the jar. We also know because of where she was in society, on the margins of society, the fringes of society, this poor lady trying to make a living in this way, uh, this was probably one of the most valuable things that she had. And here in this desperate act, she actually gives everything she has. Her most valuable item. At this non turning back moment, it's not like she can take the perfume and put it back into the jar. She shatters it and wastes it all on Jesus. And we compare that with Simon who's interested, but he doesn't want to have his position changed. He wants to stay in control, wants to kind of converse with Jesus at a distance. We also notice that Simon doesn't see his need. This is why we have the parable. So let me just read to you again the parable we have that Jesus tells in the middle of the story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one, for, the one for whom he canceled a larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. So there's this principle that, that the amount that you love is actually directly correlated to the amount you understand that you've been forgiven. And it's less about the amount. Even though in the story we see that Jesus is using the example of 50 and 500, the assumption being that Simon, the Pharisee, you know, you've got a 50, your debt is a 50 Um, and her debt is 500, 10 times more. But the phrase that is so critical is that neither of them, say neither of them, neither of them could repay Jesus. We get caught up comparing amounts of debt uh, but the reality is that we learn in scriptures that neither of them, none of us, can actually, on our own, repay Jesus. And so, yeah, you might be able to console yourself and say, well, you know, I, got, I only owe 50 and they owe 500. But we missed the point. The whole point of what Jesus is saying, that neither of them are actually able to pay back what they owe. So he doesn't recognize his need. He doesn't recognize that there's even a debt to be paid. He's he's more interested in the ideas of Jesus. He's not interested in having a Savior because he doesn't think he needs one. It doesn't matter how much you owe if you have nothing to pay it back. We look at the two and we see that there's a difference in their understanding of the cost. Simon doesn't see the cost. But the truth is that you know the debt is not going to pay itself and that forgiveness never happens without someone getting hurt. If someone hurts me and I choose to forgive them, that forgiveness comes at a cost to me. It comes at me being able to actually let go of the debt that I feel is mine. There's a cost to forgiveness. Simon doesn't recognize the cost. Have you ever had someone give you such an extravagant gift that it's wrecked you? It's humbled you? Anybody ever have that happen to them? It's powerful. Um, I wasn't sure if I was going to tell this story, um, but I I think I will. My wife was like, I don't know if you should tell that one. Um, But the reason that, that I've kind of refrained from telling the story over the years is because it's Uh, It's so extravagant, uh, and I don't even know what to do with it. Uh, But a number of years ago, when I was, um, you know, our lead pastor at the time, Willie, had come to me and had started talking to me about the importance of going back to seminary, getting my master's education, Um, you know, that would be helpful for me. But I was kind of in this place of I didn't want to leave SunWest. I loved our church. Um, I didn't want to move my family away, which would have been either to BC or to the States, um, to go to school. And I wanted to stay and stay involved in ministry. Um, It just seemed kind of odd that I would have to leave ministry to go get further equipped and prepared for ministry. So I was like, I think I want to stay. It's like, well, what if we could figure out a way for you to stay and go to school? Um, Yeah, I'd be open to that. And as we talked more, you know, obviously as you looked at seminars, at uh, going to seminary, getting a masters, there's the, this price point that was just not feasible at that point in my life. Um, also, how do I remain um, at Sunwest and, and leading at Sunwest, um, but also give the appropriate time that I need to get for school? Uh, long story short, uh, there was a uh, there was a donor that came forward. Um, I don't. I don't know any of the details of how this happened, so I'm just on the receiving end of the story, um, that was able and willing to uh, pay for my master's education. Um, and and so right there, that, that amount of money doesn't compute for me. Um, and, uh, you know, how do we even process that? Uh, and then on top of that, I had to, uh, because of, the time amount and uh, SunWest graciously allowed me to go back to two thirds time, um, and uh, and the donor also paid a third of my salary to top it up so that I could uh, so I could continue to go to school working at SunWest. Um, now, the story, uh, the the reality of that decision is, it you know it wrecks me. It wrecks me when I think about it because um, I, I don't under I got a glimpse of the cost of that, um, and then what do I do with that? How does that how does that change me? Um, you know, it tells me that someone believed in me at some point enough that they would say, "Hey, I'm going to pay this for you." Um, those nights when I'm up at two a.m., three a.m. in the morning, trying to write a paper. Um, and I know I got a sermon to write in the back of my head for the weekend. And there's stuff going on at work. And then you got the family. And there was times where I just wanted to quit. I just like, I can't do this. Uh, and if it was just me, I probably would have quit. But I can tell you that because someone stepped out and paid that for me, it actually made me lean in and say, no, someone actually sacrificed for me, believed in me enough. Um, I got to push through because this isn't just about me. And so when I think of this, it wrecks me. When I think of this, it brings a level of humility um, to my life. And then I contrast that with what Jesus has done for me, his death on the cross, and I ask myself the question, how come I don't get wrecked more often over what Jesus did for me? When I think of... something so worldly in one sense, how, that, how it impacts me, I realize that I forget the cost of what Jesus has done for me. I forget the debt that, owe, that I owed. I forget that there's, there was nothing that I could actually do myself to bring myself closer to God unless God did something on my behalf. And have we lost the wonder of the cross? Have we lost, have we lost this position of this, this sinful woman and we've actually moved over to Simon area and we said, Jesus, I just want to understand you from a distance. I just want to understand you um, in a way that I can still have control over my own life, that I don't have to pour everything out on you. Uh, but if you got stuff that would benefit me, that's you know, I wanna I wanna have that from you. But we have this detached relationship instead of this this relationship where we we're weeping at his feet. And I would say that if we're not continually, and and I'm I'm preaching to myself right now, if we're not continually impacted to the point that we're weeping at Jesus' feet and and that it's changing us and it's transforming us, it's because we've actually forgotten what He paid. We've actually forgotten the thing that we couldn't do by ourselves that He had to do for us. Why aren't we more broken? before Jesus. Now we're talking about community. What what on earth does any of this have to do with community? Well, I'll tell you what, is that the beginning of community, biblical community, if you look in the book of Acts, Acts 2 and Acts 4 and Acts 20, you'll see this this radical interdependent community that was transforming the world around them. What happened for that community to, to function in such a radical way in an interdependent way, it's because it was a group of individuals that all, like this woman, recognized what Jesus has done for them and poured their entire dependency on the person of Jesus. Now, what happens when, that, when we do that is now we're actually freed up to love one another. Well, how does that work? Well, you have interdependency, you have dependency, and you have independency. Just really quickly, dependency is obviously I'm dependent on you, or you're dependent on me, like my kids are dependent on me. Right, Joel? Um, So if I don't drive him to Edmonton yesterday, he's not going to his friend's party. Um, You're dependent on me. When we enter into relationship, into community, and I'm actually dependent on somebody else, uh, there's some point where that person is going to disappoint me and hurt me. Some of us have entered into a church community. We've actually taken our alabaster jars, so to speak, and we, 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 we've broken them out. We've poured ourselves out onto another person. Yeah. But if our dependency is on a person, that person will always let us down because they're a sinner just like us. And so then we wound each other. Or we actually decide we're going to live in a place of independency, which is just dependency on yourself which is where Simon was, and believe I'm good enough, I kind of got my life together enough that I think I can do most of this on my own. However, if we say, no, my dependency is on Jesus, it actually frees us up as a community of individuals to say, I can love you, I can serve you. When you disappoint me or you make mistakes or I make mistakes, we actually can forgive one another. Why? Because I'm totally aware of the amount that God's forgiven me and how could i not extend that to you when my the whole reason that i've been transformed and changed is because of what jesus has done for me and so i can ask freely for forgiveness too when i when i mess up with you i can say would you forgive me and it's a humiliating act but it's actually easy for me to do because i've been living in that posture with jesus all along i'm not actually pretending to be something I'm not, I don't have to control my image. I don't have to try and live independently. I can be freely interdependent because I've chosen to be dependent on Jesus. Now, a lot of us long for this type of community, and we think that we can get, it, we can get to it by going the Simon route, but I, I'm telling you that you can't. The radical community in the New Testament is only entered into by getting on our knees like this woman in Luke chapter 7 and giving everything we have to Jesus. Becoming so broken because we become we recognize our need and the cost that it took for God to enter into relationship with us. I'm gonna invite the worship team up as we close. You know those classic buddy movies? where There's like two characters and they're totally opposites, they got no business kind of hanging out together, and then they go through like this life or death experience, and then they're like BFFs. You, do you guys know the movies I'm talking about? I don't know, like Lethal Weapon, or I I <laughs> there, there's a hundred movies like that, I don't know why that one came to mind, but um, but the reality is. That there is a life and death experience that has brought the community of Jesus together. That we have something in common. And it transcends all sorts of boundaries. It allows us to sit at the table together with someone who's very different than you. Comes from a very different background, very different story, very different economic class, very different culture. And to say, you're actually my brother, you're my sister, because we actually share this life and death experience together, the life and death of Jesus the resurrection of Jesus. And it's that peace that unites us. Now, I think we as a community are hungry for this this level of community that we just are barely tapping the service of, and we can't get there by just trying to be nicer people. We actually have to get there by being broken before Jesus. So I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to invite our prayer teams forward. Um and as our prayer teams come forward uh, I don't know, I, I know that I know this feels risky, but you know like it's in the story. Like this Simon wasn't content or Simon was just content with this detached, safe distance from Jesus. Um and uh as we worship together, um just as a very Immediate response to what God might be stirring in your heart this morning. I would invite you, like that woman, just to to come forward. Um, and you can come forward to pray. You can come forward to worship. You know, you know whatever God's stirring in your heart. Um, but I think sometimes we just we're too okay with safe, detached religion, and we got to push ourselves forward in in our. In our, in our world that just values having it all together and not wanting to put myself out there. Um, you know, this, this, this woman didn't care. She, she didn't care because she recognized her need. She recognized the cost that Jesus paid. And she said, I need to go forward um, regardless of who might be around uh, because I want to respond to Jesus. And so maybe you just want to um, respond in your own way. We were seated and that's fine. Um, but maybe for you coming forward uh, you can come to the front and worship here at the front it might just be an act of saying you know what jesus i'm I'm just coming forward to worship at your feet um, this is my my act of response to what you've done for me uh, maybe it's coming forward to our worship to our prayer teams on the left or right and, and just praying with them they 'd love to pray for you whether it 's about something specific or just something in general um, but let's not try and be too safe uh, let's Let's push ourselves out there uh, because that is the beginning of transformation both for us as individuals and also as a community. So Jesus, we thank you for what you've done. We come humbled before you and recognize that uh, you paid a price that we couldn't pay. Lord, that you've done something for us that is so unimaginable that sometimes we just forget about it. Lord, we thank you for Luke 7, the story with the woman that puts it right back in her face and says, do you remember what I've done for you? Do you remember the cost? That my, my grace to you is free, but it wasn't cheap. My grace to you is free, but it wasn't cheap. And so, Lord, we just invite that that grace would break our hearts. We would move from this detached religious stance with you to this intimate, broken one that recognizes our absolute need for you as our Savior. In Jesus' name. I'm going to invite the, the band uh, as we close to, to continue to play, and you guys are welcome to stay here as long as you'd like. The prayer team. well, not as long as you like, the movies are going to happen eventually. Um, but the prayer teams I'd love to pray for you. Please feel free to sit and linger as long as you want to. Um, if you're new here, um, you just want to know a bit about, more about who we are, please pick up a welcome pack at the foyer. Um, if this idea of having a relationship with Jesus is actually new to you or you're, you're moving or you've responded for the first time this morning, I encourage you to come and chat with me. we would love to talk to you about what next steps look like and how to move forward together. So let me just pray for you. Um, Father, again, we just thank you. on everything that we couldn't do to make a way for us to love you, to know you. Uh, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't lose the wonder of the cross, Lord, that we, uh, that you would keep that before us in our personal lives, but also in our corporate lives, Lord, as we function and live together, uh, that would be on the foundation of the grace and forgiveness that we received. and, uh,